A girl's never too old for a crush, she said. This was the kind of statement that made Rena dread the idea of imitating her aunt's life. Shouldn't a woman at some point stop being a girl? Shouldn't there be an end to crushes? It was too terrible to contemplate all that starting and blushing over and over again. What about Ben? Is he your cruise boyfriend, she said, trying to shift the focus from herself. Maybe, Lorraine said coyly. Remaking family. This week on Selected Shorts. I wasn't aware of it then, but looking back now, I see that Sarge, as long as she was neither exclusively mine or Louise's, functioned in our newly dissembled family as the last remaining link to our pre-separation, prelapsarian past, to a time of relative innocence when all of us, but especially the girls, still believed in the permanence of our family unit. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. Parents, siblings, and partners. These are the people we often turn to in a crisis. But what happens if our usual confidants vanish or simply can't understand what we're going through? What happens when there is a hole in our nuclear families? In this hour of Selected Shorts, we consider stories in which extreme circumstances result in unexpected bonds. As these tales illustrate, our staunchest defenders may not be who we expect. Our first story is by the Canadian writer Alex Olean. She is the author of several novels as well as two short story collections. In this tale, a single woman and her flirtatious aunt are unlikely cruise companions. It comes from Olean's 2012 collection, Signs and Wonders, a time at which luxury liners promised a decidedly more carefree experience. Here's Broadway star Laura Benanti reading Alex Olean's The Cruise. Because her aunt was both wealthy and caring, because people seemed to believe that divorce required a period of mourning accompanied and defined by homemade ritual, because Laureen, the aunt, was also kind of bossy and wouldn't take no for an answer, because she, Rena, had been named for Laureen and they were therefore considered by the family and eventually themselves to be specially affiliated, because the same people who spoke of post-divorce rituals also said that travel broadened the mind because the world's wild creatures were disappearing and it was imperative to see them before it was too late, two women went on a cruise to the Galapagos. This is going to cheer you up, Laureen said as they boarded the flight to Quito. She had for decades been a highly paid executive secretary who wore black cashmere turtlenecks and tasteful gold jewelry. Now, in retirement, she ditched all sobriety in clothes and otherwise. She was wearing fuchsia pants and a pink striped blouse and had already downed two alcoholic smoothies at the airport bar. She squeezed Rena's hand and her breath smelled of rum and chips. Rena's eyes watered, not from the squeeze or the breath. How long had it been since anyone held her hand? She was touched by it. 
She was touched by everything these days, not hardened by the divorce so much as scraped raw. This year's holiday cards, even the generic ones from the bank and the dentist, had brought tears to her eyes. It's so nice people care, she'd tell herself as she put the cards in the otherwise bare mantle in her new apartment. The cruise hadn't been her idea, but she was grateful for it. It was two weeks of something to do every day and night, the hours portioned into particulars. Two weeks in which she wouldn't have to be alone for more than five minutes or contend with those terrible scurrying creatures, her thoughts. As they settled into first class, Laureen ordered more drinks. She had been widowed young and raised her son Jasper by herself. She was briskly competent, always cheerful and independent and brave, and Rena didn't want to be like her. <laughs> she didn't ever want to have Laureen's life. But for now, they were cruising, and she was grateful. When the plane lifted off, she felt better already. The first part of the trip was a blur, two days in Quito of heat, dehydration, bland hotel food, and a dizzying trip up the Virgen del Penecillo. Sometime after 30, she'd gone from mediocre traveler to complete wimp. Lorraine kept after her, cheerleading her through the days. It was infantilizing, and Rena liked it. She would have liked to be tucked into bed and read a story at night. She wouldn't have minded a kiss on the forehead. Her mother would never do such a thing, would never have taken her on a trip to get her mind off her troubles. In fact, had told her that the divorce was her fault, a belief Rena shared. Lorene's curt dismissal of this opinion, saying of her sister in front of Rena, she's very narrow-minded, typified her general auntly excellence. And now Lorene seemed most intent on getting Rena drunk which was largely why the first two days passed in such a blur. A brief flirtation with stomach flu or food poisoning on the day they boarded the cruise ship came as a relief, giving her some respite from rum. When she emerged on the second morning of the cruise, the social dynamics of the ship had already been established, and she had been abandoned. Laureen had a boyfriend. His name was Benjamin Moore like the paint. <laughs> a 60-year-old civil engineer from Toronto, he was sensibly dressed in press dockers and a light blue shirt, and the equatorial sun had already played havoc with his ruddy face. He and Laureen had had dinner together the first night on board and watched the stars, and were now, her aunt said, thick as thieves. I know all about you. Benjamin Moore said when introduced. Rena's nervous laugh came out as a squawk. I'll have to catch up. You don't have to do anything at all, he said kindly, by which Rena understood that he did know everything about her frailty and unfortunate life circumstances. And again, her eyes watered, which she knew was pathetic and tried to hide by putting her sunglasses on, muttering something about the light. Besides Benjamin Moore, her aunt had befriended a Japanese couple who spoke excellent, if slow-paced, English and knew everything there was to know about the wildlife photography opportunities to come. And also a German man, taking the cruise by himself and slightly younger than Rena. He's really into movies, her aunt said. His name is Hans. Yo, what's up, he said. 
shaking Rena's hand and smiling broadly. He looked like a younger, pastier, doughier version of Benjamin Moore. She understood that Laureen intended for him to be Rena's cruise boyfriend, a distraction to enjoy and practice on for her eventual return to the world, a boyfriend from camp whom you missed terribly the first day back home and then forgot about, remembering only the thrill of kisses in the woods. Hi, she said, I'm Rena. Rena, said Hans, we're going bird watching today. He seemed very pleased about it and punched his fist in the air. It's going to be motherfucking awesome, I think. <laughs> Rena looked at Laureen. Movies, her aunt mouthed. Rena could only imagine that Hans had no idea how little the word motherfucker was generally used by middle-aged people on package vacations. <laughs> They were in open water, and the sun was brutal. Rena looked around, suddenly disoriented. It was so hot, and she was so far from home. Well, Laureen said brightly, let's go. A young, white-clad officer named Stavros led them obediently as schoolchildren onto one of the islands where they would begin their wildlife tour. The Galapagos were bare and brilliant. Back in the distance, their ship waited, hulking and white and patient. Rena looked at it longingly. Although seeing the wildlife was the whole point of the trip, she found the ship's rituals comforting. The constant availability of food, the orchestrated social events, even their tiny cabin, everything outside was too big, too bright. We're at the end of the world, she thought, and understood why people used to think the earth was flat. Glancing fearfully at the horizon, she felt as if they might sail right over the edge. She started to cry again and hated herself for it. When would this stop? It wasn't even localized pain anymore. Her tear ducts were just in the habit. She set off after the tour guide, hot tears coursing freely down her cheeks. Hans sprang to her side, loping energetically like a dog. Behind her, Laureen's happy laugh harmonized with Benjamin Moore's lower rhythmic music. This is the frigate bird, the guide said. She was young. She was a pretty biologist with her hair in a long, blonde braid, her sturdy legs and cargo shorts planted firmly on the ground. They're named after a warship, and they steal catches from other birds. During mating season, the male's red air sac inflates like a bullfrog's neck. What is this air sac? Hans asked Rena. She tried to answer him by gesturing, but he still looked confused. After the frigate bird, they spent a long time looking at iguanas. Everyone silent as their cameras whirred and clicked. It was as if they were a group of robots. These mechanical sounds, their only language. Iguanas, Rena learned, are quite hypoallergenic and would make good pets if only they were not endangered. <laughs> Hypothetically, good pets. Hans was taken by one that looked like a dinosaur, its neck ringed by sharply pointed prehistoric skin. Motherfucker. <laughs> he marveled sweetly, almost under his breath. She wanted to ask him why he was here. If he was pursuing a lifelong dream or escaping some disappointment, but this question, why are you here, was too loaded. After all, she wouldn't want to have to answer it herself. Laureen and Benjamin were standing next to them, and she hadn't even noticed. 
Rena smiled at her and said she was having a good time. You don't have to be so polite, Laureen said. You don't even have to have a good time. Just be, okay? At this, without warning or choice, Rena burst into a full-grown sob attack. Alarmed, the tour guide came over and put her hand on Rena's shoulder, her blonde braid gently brushing her arm. Is everything all right? Suddenly, the world was in motion. Everyone was looking at Rena, muttering and whispering. The endangered species scrambled to take flight. Medical emergency personnel were summoned. Before she knew it, Rena was sitting in the incomplete shade of some equatorial tree, drinking water, taking aspirin, and applying sunblock, while anxious crew members loitered nearby, scribbling notes on clipboards, conferring about dehydration and liability. How would she become such a spectacle? She knew what her ex-husband would say if he were here, if they were still speaking. You go to one of nature's most spectacular places and you make it all about you. He would say that, and he'd be right. After insisting she was fine at least a dozen times, Rena was allowed to stand up. Laureen took her arm as if trying to support an invalid. Smelling powerfully of some floral perfume she was wearing, a, a black and white striped blouse, gauzy and slightly revealing of her bra, and red capri pants, and gold hoop earrings, she looked fantastic. <laughs> Rena leaned against her as birds disappeared over the horizon, and then they were gone. Back on the ship, they dressed for dinner. At Laureen's command, Rena had brought two new outfits, clothing with no past associations. She put on a blue dress, hoping to feel pretty. Her skin felt pleasantly scorched and dry. In the dining room, she and Laureen were seated at separate tables, a procedure designed to encourage further mixing among the guests. Hans, sitting on her right, kept smiling and offering her more wine. He asked what she thought about Martin Scorsese. Is he the one who did The Godfather? She asked. Most movies are so violent, I don't go very much. Judging from his expression, this was the wrong answer. <laughs> After dinner, the bar stayed open and people milled around, loose and friendly. Rena stepped outside to get some air. She'd spilled some of her dinner on her new dress. It was just that kind of day. A hand touched her arm and she turned around with a prepared, chipper smile, expecting Laureen. But it was Benjamin Moore. Your aunt's organizing a card game, he said. I'm not big on cards, Rena said. Neither am I. I thought I'd come out and join you. Is that all right? Of course, Rena said, though it was more confusing than all right. He inquired in a gentlemanly way about her health, and together they stood looking at the black water and the indecipherable landscape. Darwin, birds, the understanding of our humble origins that science gave us, that's what you were supposed to see. All Rena saw in the dark was water and rocks. I have a son who's 25, Benjamin said musingly, not looking at her. He's gay and he thinks I don't know it, but I do. It upsets me more than I'd like it to. He's an actor on a soap opera. It's on every day at one in the afternoon. He plays what you might call a rake. I have a TV in my office, and every day I sit there eating my lunch and watching my gay son seduce women wearing too much makeup. <laughs> Rena had no idea what to say to this. <laughs> Maybe this was part of the cruise ship experience. 
along with the dinners and the wildlife tours, you went on board and told strangers the story of your life. Sometimes they look like their entire faces are coated in Vaseline, Benjamin went on. Why do they do that? Sometimes I think that if I had to look at those women all day and kiss them and such, maybe I'd be gay too. I'm not sure why you're telling me this, Benjamin, Rena told him. You can call me Ben, he said affably. The ensuing silence didn't appear to make him uncomfortable. It lasted so long that Rena felt compelled to speak. She took a breath. Then she said, I got divorced because I cheated on my husband. Electronically cheated. I started emailing my high school boyfriend and we fell in love all over again and my husband found out and my high school boyfriend wasn't interested in leaving his wife but my husband left me and I don't blame him. What her mother had said, Rena, you've never known how to take care of things. You were always breaking your toys and messing up your clothes. This is the same. <laughs> Only bigger. What Laureen had said, well, honey, everything happens for a reason. What Rena had said, I'm an idiot and a fool. This internet, Ben said, it's changing our lives. <laughs> Rena's laugh sounded like a bark. Yeah, it's definitely the internet's fault. <laughs> That's not what I said, he said. She looked at him. There was no absolution in his voice, but no blame either. She couldn't figure out what he was doing there with her while her charming, vibrant aunt was off playing cards. Everything changes, and nothing stays the same, he said after a while. They stood looking into the darkness as if there were something to see. By the time Laureen came out to say goodnight, Rena was by herself. Ben had gone back into his cabin. You doing okay, kiddo? Better, thanks. I think Hans has a crush on you. Laureen... How old are you? A girl's never too old for a crush, she said. This was the kind of statement that made Rena dread the idea of imitating her aunt's life. Shouldn't a woman at some point stop being a girl? Shouldn't there be an end to crushes? It was too terrible to contemplate all that starting and blushing over and over again. What about Ben? Is he your cruise boyfriend, she said, trying to shift the focus from herself. Maybe, Lorraine said coyly. He's awfully cute, but there are a lot of fish in the sea. Or, as we learned on our nature talk, there are many fewer fish than there used to be. But still fish exist, and we can fish them. <laughs> are you drunk, Auntie Lorraine? You bet, honey pie, her aunt said, and kissed her cheek. Rena woke early, Laureen snoring woozily in the other bed. It wasn't even five yet. She rose as quietly as she could and went out on the deck. The sun was pearly, kind. When she was married, this was the only time of day she'd had completely to herself. Then she'd contaminated it, that lovely solitude with time spent on the computer and desperate yearning emails she now cringed to think of. The man she'd grown so close to, whose words she'd read so feverishly she could hardly remember. What she missed was the need of him. How it prickled her skin. How she jonesed and ached her blood in a kind of fury. She'd ruined her solitude with wanting. And then she was alone in a different way. This morning, 
She was not alone, as it turned out. Ben was there too. She smiled when she saw him, unexpectedly pleased. He looked as if he'd been up for hours, and without speaking, he offered her a cup of coffee from the leather-encased thermos by his side. She nodded and sipped. In front of them were islands, behind them were islands. Ancient, inhospitable places. It should have soothed her seeing them, should have reinforced her smallness in the world. If it didn't, then it was not the island's fault. Though the day began on a magical note, later it began to unravel. First, there were complications with the scheduled activities and logistical delays that went unexplained, and the crew members smiled tight-lipped as they attempted to behave as if nothing was wrong. Then came rain and great torrents, trapping them on the ship and moving them beyond the awkward pleasantries of early acquaintance into the annoyances of familiarity. You could notice the strain in people's voices, hear previously affectionate couples now snapping and bickering. Everybody agreed that lunch was substandard. <laughs> in the afternoon, the weather cleared and moods lifted. Scuba diving had, for some reason, fallen through, and the replacement activity was to visit a beach where sea lions lay napping. Though people complained about the insufficiency of this program, it's not like we can look at animals all day, Rena heard one woman tell Stavros angrily. They all filed onto the beach because what else could they do? Laureen was wearing a white swimsuit bedecked with gold jewelry and a red sarong, and she looked like some aging goddess, sensual and distended. In her striped blue t-shirt, Rena felt sexless and uptight. They embarked in their small clique, Hans, Ben, and Reiko and Tomo, the Japanese couple. Hans was acting peculiar. Deeply flushed, he kept slapping his hands against the side of his leg. As he was wearing long swim trunks, the nylon made a swishing sound each time. Everyone kept looking at him, but he was too agitated or preoccupied to notice. Lorene nudged Rena. I think he's jealous of you and Ben, she said happily. What do you mean, Rena said, startled. I heard about you two up drinking coffee with the birds. Oh, don't worry about me. I've got lots of opportunities. You play the field, honey. I deed him over to you. <laughs> you deed him? Rena said. Tears clustered once again in her eyes, though this time they were tears of anger or maybe anguish. She wasn't sure. Certainly it felt adolescent and hormonal. Laureen, could you just stop, please, acting like this is high school? I know you mean well, but I don't need to go back to high school. Laureen put her hands on her hips. It wouldn't kill you, she said, to have a little fun. You act like having fun would actually hurt, like you're allergic to it or something. Men like women who like fun. I'm sure Jason and Bobby would have liked a little fun too. It was the first time on the trip that either of them had spoken those names. Rena felt sick. She'd never get away from it. How much everything was her own fault. Oh, honey, Lorraine said, forget I said that. Rena shook her head. She felt as if her arms, her neck, her ears were on fire. If she could have, she would have jumped into the water and swum to the ship, gotten into bed and pulled the covers over her head. Hey, Lorene said, the sea lions. They lay in a line on the beach, flopped down like cushions, vulnerable and dopey like overweight puppies. They were almost preposterously cute. 
Rena immediately wanted to touch them, even knowing that she couldn't, that they weren't pets, wouldn't even be good hypothetical pets. <laughs> but how could anyone resist them? The fight she and Laureen were having disintegrated, shelved until there were less pressing cuteness in front of them. Ben took Hans by the arm and walked him down the beach, pointing out some features of the landscape, a soothing, fatherly gesture. The Japanese couple crouched and bent calisthenically, their telephoto lenses zooming. Laureen and Rena stood quietly, not too close and not too far, listening to the occasional thwapping of the sea lion's glistening tails. Two raised their heads, but overall they didn't seem disturbed. Maybe they were used to the tourists. Or maybe this invasion was so far down on their list of sea lion priorities, fish, swim, bask on the beach, that they had no concept of it. The biologist guide had joined them and was talking about threats to the sea lions, from skin infections due to polluted waters to plastics that could strangle or choke. She talked about how their mothers nursed younger and older pups at the same time. If the younger one was too much weaker than its sibling, then it would die. She droned on relentlessly, reciting these terrible things so matter-of-factly, without emphasis, without tears. Rena's heart squeezed. She reached out and took her aunt's hand in hers. Look, she kept saying, even though she knew Laureen already saw. Just look! That was Laura Venanti reading Alex Olin's The Cruise. When we return, pet politics. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Cynthia Nixon. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. On this Selected Shorts, we hear stories about powerful, if unexpected, connections within a family. The next story was written by novelist and poet Russell Banks. He's known for works that delve into the psyches of unlikely protagonists, such as Cloud Splitter, about the abolitionist John Brown, or the story about Edgar Allan Poe we featured a while back, The Call. The one coming up is about one family's animal companions. As you'll hear, they have a big role in maintaining the family's emotional well-being. This is 
A Permanent Member of the Family by Russell Banks. It's read by Short's mainstay, Zach Grenier. I'm not sure I want to tell this story on myself, not now, some 35 years after it happened. But it has more or less become a family legend and consequently has been much revised. And if I may say, since I'm not merely a witness to the crime, but its perpetrator, much distorted as well. It has been told around by people who are virtual strangers, people who heard it from one of my daughters or my son-in-law or my granddaughter, all of whom enjoy telling it because it paints the old man, that's me, in a somewhat humiliating light. Apparently, humbling the old man still gives pleasure, and not just to people who know him personally. My main impulse here is to merely set the record straight, even if it does, in a vague way, reflect badly on me. Not on my character so much as on my ability to anticipate bad things, and thus on my ability to have protected my children when they were very young from those bad things. I'm also trying to reclaim the story, to take it back and make it mine again. If that sounds selfish of me, remember that for 35 years, it has belonged to everyone else. It was the winter following the summer I separated from Louise, the woman who for 14 turbulent years had been my wife. It took place in a shabbily quaint village in southern New Hampshire, where I was teaching literature at a small liberal arts college. The divorce had not yet kicked in, but the separation was complete, an irreversible fact of life, my life, and Louise's, and the lives of our three girls, Andrea, Caitlin, and Sasha, who were six, nine, and 13 years old. My oldest daughter, Vicky, from my first marriage, was then 18 and living with me, having run away from her mother and stepfather's home in North Carolina. She was enrolled as a freshman at the college where I taught and was temporarily housed in a studio apartment I built for her above the garage. All of us were fissioned atoms, spun off nuclear families seeking new recombinant nuclei. I had left Louise in August and had bought a small abandoned house with an attached garage a quarter of a mile away, which felt and looked like the gatehouse to Louise's much larger, elaborately groomed Victorian man's on the hill. <laughs> Following my departure, her social life, always more intense and open-ended than mine, continued unabated and even intensified, as if for years my presence had acted as a party killer. On weekends especially, cars rumbled back and forth along the unpaved lane between my cottage and her house at all hours of the day and night. Some of the cars I recognized as belonging to our former shared friends. Some of them were new to me and bore out-of-state plates. We were each financially independent of the other. She, through a sizable trust set up by her grandparents, I, by virtue of my teaching position. There was, therefore, no alimony for our lawyers to fight for or against, since our 
one jointly owned asset of consequence, that rather grandiose Victorian manse, had been purchased with her family's money. I signed my half of it over to her without argument. It had always seemed pretentiously bourgeois to me, a bit of an embarrassment, frankly, and I was glad to be rid of it. Regarding the children, the plan was that my ex-wife, as I was already thinking of her, and I would practice joint custody, a Solomonic solution to the rending of family fabric. At the time, the late 70s, this was seen as a progressive, although most untried, way of doling out parental responsibilities in a divorce. Three and a half days a week, the girls would reside with me and Vicky, and three and a half days a week with their mother. They would alternate three nights at my house one week with four nights the next, so that for every 14 nights, they would have slept seven at the home of each parent. Half of their clothing and personal possessions would be at my place, where I carved out two tiny low-ceiling bedrooms out of the attic, and half would be at their mother's, where each child had her own large, high-windowed bedroom and a walk-in closet. <laughs> it was an easy, safe stroll between the two houses, and on transitional days, the school bus could pick them up in the morning at one parent's house and drop them off that afternoon at the other. We agreed to handle holidays and vacations on an ad hoc basis postponing the problem, in other words. <laughs> that left only the cat, a large black Maine Coon cat named Scooter, and the family dog, a white part poodle mutt we rescued from the pound 12 years earlier when I was a graduate at school. A neutered female, unaccountably named Sarge. She was an adult dog of indeterminate age when we got her and was now very Old. She was arthritic, half-blind, partly deaf, and devoted to everyone in the family. We were her pack. Louise and I agreed that Scooter and Sarge, unlike our daughters, could not adapt to joint custody and therefore would have to live full-time in one place or the other. I made a preemptive bid for Sarge, who was viewed as belonging to not either parent but to the three girls, who were very protective of her, as if she were a mentally and physically challenged sibling. Despite her frailty, she was the perfect family dog, sweet, placid, utterly dependent, and demonstrably grateful for any form of human kindness. Scooter, on the other hand, was a loner and often out all night prowling the neighborhood for sex. We had neglected to castrate him until he was nearly three, and evidently he still thought he was obliged to endure mortal combat with other male cats for the sexual favors of females, even though he was no longer capable of enjoying those favors. He had long been regarded by Louise and the girls, and by Scooter himself as my cat, probably because I was an early riser and fed him when he showed up at the back door at dawn looking like a boxer who needed a good cut man. <laughs> And though neither of us overtly acknowledge it, he and I were the only males in the family. He ended up at my gatehouse down the lane, not because I particularly wanted him there, but more or less by default. In keeping with the principle of dividing custodial responsibilities equally between ex-husband and ex-wife, since the ex-husband had been claimed by the cat, it was decided that the dog would stay at the home of the ex-wife. She insisted on it. There was no discussion or negotiation. I 
balked at first, but then backed off. Keeping Sarge at her house was an important point of pride for Louise. The one small tilt in her favor in an otherwise equitable division of property, personal possessions, and domestic responsibility. It was a small victory over me in a potentially much more destructive contest that we were both determined to avoid. And I didn't mind handing it to her. Choose your battles, I reminded myself. Also, claiming Sarge as her own was a not-so-subtle, though probably unconscious way, for Louise to claim our daughters as more hers than mine. I didn't mind giving that to her either, as long as I <laughs> knew it was an illusion. <laughs> it made me feel more magnanimous and wise than I really was. Back then, there were many differences between me and Louise as to reality and illusion, truth and falsity, and a freaking confusion of the causes of the breakdown of the marriage with the symptoms of an already broken marriage. But I'd rather not go into them here because this story is not concerned with those differences and that confusion, which now, these many years later, have dwindled to irrelevance. Besides, both Louise and I have been happily remarried to new spouses for decades. And our children are practically middle-aged and have children of their own. One daughter is herself twice divorced, like her dad. <laughs> At first, the arrangement went as smoothly as Louise and I had hoped. The girls, bless their hearts, once the initial shock of the separation wore off, seemed to embrace the metronomic movement back and forth between their old familiar family home, now owned and operated solely by their mother, and the new rough-hewn home operated by their father. With a swing set and slide from Sears, I turned the backyard into a suburban playground. It was a mild autumn with long Indian summer, I recall, and I, I pitched a surplus army tent among the maples by the brook and let the girls grill hot dogs and toast marshmallows and sleep out there in sleeping bags on warm nights when there was no school the next day. Back in June, I knew I'd soon be parenting and housekeeping on my own. I had scheduled my fall term classes and conferences for early in the day so that I could be home waiting for the girls when they stepped down from the bus. With Vicky living over the garage, although only sleeping there irregularly, as she now had a boyfriend at school who had his own apartment in town, my place that fall was like an after-school summer camp for girls. The one unanticipated complication arose when Sarge trotted arthritically along behind the girls as best she could whenever they came from their mother's house to mine. This in itself was not a problem, except that when the girls returned to their mothers at the end of their three or four scheduled nights with me, Sarge refused to follow. She stayed with me and Scooter. Her preference was clear, although her reasons were not. <laughs> she even resisted being leashed and went limp like an anti-war demonstrator arrested for trespass and could not be made to stand or walk. Within an hour of the girl's departure, Louise would telephone and insist I drive the dog home, as she put it. Sarge lives with me, she said, me and the girls. Custody of Sarge was a victory over Louise that I had not sought. I had never thought of her as my dog, but as the family dog, by which I meant belonging to the children. 
I tried explaining that it appeared to be Sarge's decision to stay with me and assured her I had done nothing to coerce the dog into staying and nothing to hinder her in any way from following the girls up the lane when they left. Quite the opposite. But Louise would have none of it. Just bring the damn dog back now, she said, and hung up. Her voice and her distinctive Virginia Tidewater accent echo in my ears these many years later. I was driving a Ford station wagon then, and because of her arthritis, poor old Sarge couldn't get into the back on her own, so I had to lift her up carefully and lay her in, and when I arrived at Louise's house, I had to open the tailgate and scoop the dog up in my arms and set her down on the driveway like an offering, a peace offering, I suppose, though it felt more like a appropriation. This happened every week, despite all Louise's efforts to keep Sarge, a permanent resident of her house, the dog always managed to slip out, arriving at my door just behind the girls, or else she came down the lane increasingly on her own, even when the girls were in their mother's custody. So it wasn't Andrea, Caitlin, and Sasha that the dog was following, it was me. I began to see that in her canine mind. I was her pack leader, and since I had moved to the new den, so had she. If she didn't follow me there, she'd be without a leader and a proper den. There was nothing that Louise and I could do to show Sarge how wrong she was. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't wrong, of course. She was a dog. <laughs> Finally, after about a month, Louise gave up, although she never announced her capitulation. Simply, there came a time when my ex-wife no longer called me with orders to deliver our family dog to her doorstep. Everyone, me, Sarge, the girls, I think even Louise, was relieved. We all knew on some level that a major battle, one with a likelihood of causing considerable collateral damage, had been narrowly avoided. Yet despite my relief, I felt a buzzing low-grade anxiety about having gained sole custody of Sarge. I wasn't aware of it then, but looking back now, I see that Sarge, as long as she was neither exclusively mine or Louise's, functioned in our newly dissembled family as the last remaining link to our pre-separation, prelapsarian past, to a time of relative innocence when all of us, but especially the girls, still believed in the permanence of our family unit, our pack. If Sarge had only agreed to traipse up and down the lane behind the girls, if she agreed to accept joint custody, <laughs> then my having left my wife could have been seen by all of us as an eccentric, impulsive, possibly even temporary sleeping arrangement. For the, and for the girls, it could have been a bit like uh, going on a continuous series of neighborhood camping trips with Dan. I would not have felt quite so guilty, and Louise would not have been so hurt and angry. The whole abandonment issue would have been ameliorated somewhat. The children would not have been so traumatized. Their lives, as they see them today, would not have been permanently disfigured, and neither Louise nor I might have gone looking so quickly for replacement spouses. I mean, that's a lot of weight to put on a family dog, I know. <laughs> but we all lose our innocence soon enough. It's inescapable. Most of us aren't emotionally or intellectually ready for it until our 30s or even later, however. So when one loses it prematurely in childhood and adolescence through divorce or the 
sudden early death of a parent, it can leave one fixated on that loss for a lifetime. Because it's premature, it feels unnatural, violent, unnecessary, a permanent gratuitous wounding, and it leaves one angry at the world. And to provide one's unfocused anger with a proper target, one looks for someone to blame. No one blames Sarge, of course, for rejecting joint custody and therefore breaking up the family. Not consciously, anyhow. In fact, back then, at the beginning of the breakup of the family, none of us knew how much we depended on Sarge to preserve our ignorance of the fragility, the very impermanence of the family. None of us knew that she was helping us postpone our anger and need for blame. Blame for the separation and divorce, for the destruction of the family unit, for our lost innocence. Whenever the girls stepped down from the school bus, for their three or four nights stay at my house, they were clearly profoundly comforted to see Sarge, her wide grin, her wet black eyes glazed by cataracts, her floppy tail and slipshod slanted arthritic gait as she trailed them from bus stop to the house. Wherever the girls settled in the yard or the house, as long as she didn't have to climb the narrow attic stairs to be with them, Sarge lay watchfully beside them, as if guarding them from a danger whose existence Louise and I had not yet acknowledged. Vicky wasn't around all that much, but Sarge was not attached to her in the same intense way as to the three younger girls. Sarge pretty much ignored Vicky. From the dog's perspective, I think Vicky was a late-arriving auxiliary member of the pack, which I Hate to admit is how the three younger girls saw her too, despite my best efforts to integrate all four daughters into a single family unit. No one admitted this, of course, but even then, that early in the game, I saw that I was failing to build a recombinant nuclear family. Vicky was a free radical and sadly would remain one. <laughs> Mostly when the children were at school or up at their mother's, Sarge slept through her days. Her only walking diversion in the absence of the girls was going for rides in my car, and I, oh, I took her everywhere I went, even to my office at the college where she slept under my desk when I met my classes. From dusk to dawn, when the weather turned wintry and snow was falling, if I were at home and my car parked in the driveway, Sarge's habit, so as not to miss an opportunity for a ride, was to crawl under the vehicle and sleep there between the rear wheels until I came out. When I got into the car, I'd start the engine, and if the girls were there with me, count the seconds aloud until 15 or 20 seconds into my count, Sarge appeared at the driver's side door window, then I'd step out, flip open the tailgate, and lift her into the back. If the girls weren't there, I still counted, but silently. I never got as high as 30 before Sarge was waiting by the car door. I don't remember now where we were headed, but this time all four daughters were in the car together, Vicky in the front passenger seat, Andrea, Caitlin, and Sasha in back. I remember it as a daytime drive, even though because of Vicky's classes and the younger girls' school hours, it was unusual for all four to be in the car at the same time during the day. Maybe it was a Saturday or Sunday. Maybe we were going ice skating at one of the local ponds. It was a bright, cloudless, cold afternoon, I remember that, and there was no snow on the ground just then, which suggests deep freeze following the usual January thaw. 
We must have been five or six months into separation and divorce, which would not be final until the following August. Piling into the car, all four girls were in a silly mood. They were singing along to a popular BG disco song, More Than a Woman, singing in perfect mocking harmony and substituting the lines like, bold-headed woman for more than a woman, and breaking each other up, even the youngest, Andrea, who would have just turned seven then. I can't say that I was distracted. I was simply happy, happy to see my daughters goofing off together and was grinning at the four of them as they sang. And my gaze turned from one bright face to another and I realized that I had counted all the way to 60 and was still continuing. That far into it, I didn't make the connection between the count and the lifting Sarge into the back of the stage wagon. I simply stopped counting, put the car in reverse and started to back out of the driveway. There was a thump and a bump. The girls stopped singing. No one said a word. I hit the brake, put the car in park, and shut off the motor. I lay my forehead against the steering wheel rim. All four daughters began to wail. It was a primeval, keening, utterly female wail. Their voices rose in pitch and volume, became almost operatic, as if for years they had been waiting for this moment to arrive when they could at last give voice together to a lifetime's accumulated pain and suffering. Terrible, almost unthinkable thing had happened. Their father had slain a permanent member of the family. We all knew it the second we heard the bump and felt the thump, but the girls knew something more. Instinctively, they understood the linkage between this moment with Sarge dead beneath the wheels of my car and my decision the previous summer to leave my wife. My reasons for that decision, my particular forms of pain and suffering, my years of humiliation and sense of having been too compromised in too many ways ever to respect myself again unless I left my wife. Well, none of that mattered to my daughters, even to Vicky, who as much as the other three needed the primal family unit, with two loving parents and residents together, needing it to remain intact and to continue into her adult life, holding and sustaining her and her sisters, nurturing them, and more than anything else, protecting them from bad things. When the wailing finally subsided and came to a gradual end, I had apologized so sincerely and repeatedly that the girls began to comfort me instead of letting me comfort them, telling me that Sarge must have died before I hit her with the car or she would have come out from under it in plenty of time. We left the car, wrapped Sarge's body in an old blanket. I carried her body and the girls carried several of her favorite toys and her food dish to the far corner of the backyard. And laid her and her favorite things down beneath the leafless old maple tree. I told the girls that they could always come out to this tree and stand over Sarge's grave and remember her love for them and their love for her. While I went to the garage for a shovel and pick, the girls stood over Sarge's body as if to protect it from desecration. When I returned, Vicky said, the ground's frozen dead, you know? Well, that's why I brought the pick, I said. But the truth is, I had forgotten that the ground was hard as pavement, and she knew it. They all knew it. I was practically weeping by now, confused and frightened by the title welter of emotions rising in my chest and taking me completely over. 
As the girls calmed and seemed to grow increasingly focused on the task at hand, I spun out of control. I threw the shovel down beneath the maple tree and started slamming the pick against the ground, whacking the sear rock-hard sod with fury. The blade clanged in the cold morning air and bounced off the ground, and the girls, frightened by my wild, gasping swings, backed away from me as if watching their father avenge a crime they had not witnessed, delivering a punishment that exceeded the crime to a terrible degree. I only glimpsed this and was further maddened by it and turned my back to them so I wouldn't see their fear and disapproval. And I slammed the steel against the ground with increasing force again and again until finally I was out of breath and the nerves of my hands were vibrating painfully from the blows. I stopped attacking the ground at last. And as my head cleared, I remembered the girls and I slowly turned to say something to them, something that would somehow gather them in and dilute their grief-stricken fears. I didn't know what to say, but something would come to me. It always did. But the girls were gone. I looked across the yard, past the rusting swing set toward the house, and saw the four of them disappear one by one between the house and the garage. Vicky in the lead, then Sasha holding Andrea's hand, and Caitlin. A few seconds later, they reappeared on the far side of the house, walking up the lane toward the home of my ex-wife. Now Vicky was holding Andrea's hand in one of hers, and Caitlin's in the other, and Sasha, the eldest of my ex-wife's three daughters, was in the lead. That's more or less the whole story, except to mention that when the girls were finally out of sight, Scooter, my black cat, strolled from the bushes alongside the brook that marked the edge of the yard where he had probably been hunting bulls and ground-feeding chickadees. He made his way across the yard to where I stood, passed by me, sat next to Sarge's stiffened body. The blanket around her body had been blown back by the breeze. The cold wind riffled her dense white fur. Her sightless eyes were dry and opaque. Her great tongue lolled from her open mouth as if stopped in the middle of a yawn. She looked like game, wild animal killed for her coat or her flesh, and not a permanent member of the family. I drove the body of the dog to the veterinarians where she was cremated and carried the ashes in a ceramic jar back to my house and placed the jar on the fireplace mantle, thinking, that in the spring, when the ground thawed, the girls and I would bury the ashes down by the maple tree, by the brook, but that never happened. The girls did not want to talk about Sarge. They did not spend as much time at my house anymore as they had before Sarge died. Vicky moved in with her boyfriend in town. By spring, the other girls stayed overnight at my house every other weekend only, and by summer, when they were off to camp in the White Mountains, not at all, and I saw them that summer only once when I drove up to Camp Abenaki on parents' weekend. I emptied the jar with Sarge's ashes into the brook alone one afternoon in May. The following year, I was offered a tenure-track position at a major university in New Jersey, and given my age and stage of career, I felt obliged to accept it. I sold my little house down the lane from my ex-wife's home. From then on, the girls visited me and their old cat, Scooter, when they could, which was once a month for a weekend during the school year and for a week before summer camp began.
Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Our actor, Zach Grenier, connected to the end of that story just beautifully. He read A Permanent Member of the Family by Russell Banks at the Dallas Museum of Art. We have a pet named Aurora. We did not name her. I always like to say that because I'm not particularly fond of her name. We inherited her when she was five and a half, and we've had her for about two and a half years now. She is a Siberian because my wife is allergic. She is a beautiful cat and just an exemplary creature in every way. She is not technically our emotional support animal, but I think she definitely provides that for all of us, most especially our nine-year-old, who kind of talks about that all the time. Not just pleasure, but also comfort he gets from Aurora. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story, Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Coleman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.